Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and it seems you have fallen way down the True Tunes rabbit hole. Maybe you've come to the podcast recently and are just working your way back to our first few shows, or who knows, maybe someone sent you a direct link to one of these early outings. All I can say is welcome, thanks for stopping by, Bruce and I are glad you're here, but have some mercy on us please. I'll be honest, when Bruce and I went back and listened to these early episodes, well, let's just say it clearly took us a handful of shows for us to get our feet under us. We knew what we wanted to do, but the way to get there took some tweaking. But the interviews are still valuable, and it's probably worthwhile to have these available as documents of our evolution, so we've trimmed them up a bit, tried to keep them timely, and inserted these little disclaimer introductions to each one. You might still hear a few dated references, some wonky edits, and some rough fades, so have some mercy on us as you dig these earliest episodes out of cold storage and enjoy. Thanks for listening. Oh, and if somehow this is your first exposure to our show, please check out any of our more recent episodes for a more accurate representation. Okay, Bruce, roll it. Hey, this is Sandra McCracken. Welcome to the True Tunes Podcast. Hello, I'm John J. Thompson, and welcome to the True Tunes Podcast. I'll be perfectly honest with you right now. It's often hard for me to get into what is currently called worship music, especially when the world seems to be on fire and the church, well, Maybe I'll keep those thoughts to myself for now. But as a worship leader myself, and as someone who has been in the quote-unquote worship industry for many years, I have to be honest. Sometimes I'm just tired of these songs. As a songwriter, I find worship songs to be the hardest to write. But as the world seems to be coming off the rails, and my faith feels as if it is constantly being tested, I know that I need more of anything that will help calibrate my heart and mind, which is what true worship should do. But for some reason, or maybe many reasons, it's just been more and more difficult for me to enter in, as the church folks say. Maybe you can relate. We are told several times in the Bible to sing a new song, so I keep trying and wondering, why? Why sing and write new songs? One of the things I do in times like these is to seek counsel from people who are demonstrating wisdom and skill in this area, and there are few who do it as well as singer and songwriter Sandra McCracken. Her songs break me down, build me up, and draw my community together. She is also a thinker, a leader, a producer, and a pastor herself. Sandra is truly a modern psalmist, and there is much we can learn from her. I am so excited to welcome her to the podcast today. Teach me, O God, to follow your decrees. Give me understanding, your word I want to keep. Command. There I find delight. My will is in your hand. 
We will talk about the craft of writing sacred congregational music, and we will talk about the struggle behind the scenes. We'll talk about the role this music can and maybe should be playing in the social conversations we are currently having around issues related to justice, community, and the deeper meaning of love. We will also pull the curtain back a bit and talk about the business of worship music and if, when, and how it might make sense to partner with a publisher or label to help your songs reach a wider audience. We will also hear some of her brand new songs. There is a fountain ever flowing where the waters are not spent. Here you and I, we trade our sorrows for the love that will not end. In 2015, Sandra released an album entitled Psalms that knocked me out. I was familiar with her music. She had already released several very impressive independent albums, and I knew that she had been affiliated with a group of songwriters and artists called Indelible Grace that had taken some really old hymn texts and set them to new melodies. But her solo music was more in the indie pop vein. When I heard Psalms, though, it stopped me cold. One song in particular, We Will Feast in the House of Zion, really got to me. tried singing along once I knew the chorus, but I couldn't get the words out. I just started weeping. A combination of lament and hope stuck in my throat and overflowed through my eyes, and I had to pull my car over. Later that night, thinking I had it together, I tried again at home and still couldn't do it. It's still hard for me to sing that song, but I make myself do it. It's important. There is something about actually singing it that is so powerful. Sure, I could read those words. We will feast in the house of Zion. We will feast and weep no more. And while I would appreciate the meaning of those words and even assent to them intellectually, I wouldn't likely get overly emotional. But when I open my mouth, use my own breath, vibrate my own vocal cords, and generate those sounds, it's different. It touches a different part of me. It's not merely intellectual anymore, and I don't think it's merely emotional either. There are a few songwriters out there crafting sacred music, music specifically meant to help people sing to and about God, who I have experienced to be not just good at the craft, but tapped into some reservoir of soul that is otherworldly. Sandra is one of those writers. Her simple, folk-based melodies, her beautiful delivery, and her meticulously crafted and theologically rich lyrics weave together in a way that, for me, recalls writers like Rich Mullins and Mark Hurd. If you are already a fan, you're no doubt eager for me to wrap up this intro and start the conversation, which I shall do presently. But knowing what I know about this audience, I'm sure that there are many who are not yet familiar with Sandra or her songs, and I wanted to take a little extra time to set the stage. She's kind of a big deal, and I'm really honored to have her here today. A bit later, we will crank up some music on the jukebox from nearly three decades ago that I feel is at least partly responsible for the modern worship revolution that has made music like Sandra's possible. With no further ado, let's enter in. Singing a new song with Sandra McCracken. <laughs> 
Sandra McCracken, I'm, I'm, I just really appreciate you taking time to be with us uh, today here on the on the podcast. And I'm going to start with a, a crazy question. I think I asked you this before, and um, you're one of my favorite songwriters doing this right now. I think that your songs are so important, but why write new songs? Don't we have enough songs already? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like what motivates someone like you to dig so deep and keep writing more songs specifically more sacred songs for people to sing at church Mm. man thank you thanks for having me john i mean it's always a good question i mean you can ask that a million times and you might get a slightly different answer i will say i'll stay out of the gates that in this moment that i'm in right now i just had the revelation this morning i was like man i don't know where my journal is i haven't written in the last, I'm just finishing a project, but I haven't written in the last couple of weeks and I feel super strange, right? So I think the reason we need songs is because it's like, it's like a heartbeat. It's like something that comes out of us that is, if you're paying attention, it's there and it's, you can draw it up and put it out in the world. And, and I think we miss out when we're not doing that. And they're not always great songs and they're not always some songs you want to sing more than once. <laughs> some right, days right. you'd probably rather not. But I think the songs are, are always there and they're always emerging and they're always new. I think all of us are called to sing a new song with our lives, to to constantly be thinking about what is happening around us and and process that as opposed to just kind of walking through mm. and especially now like uh, gosh it's so easy to kind of stumble through life and just consume things and mm-hmm. um, but i think that we're called to actually sing these new songs because life is different but other people are gifted in a way to put special words that maybe some of us can't we couldn't have come up with those words in that way and so you are able to do it in a way that the rest of us can sing along and go that's what i meant to say like i Mm. that those are the words i was looking for what have you done tell me about your background and and what got you to this point where you have this ability to to craft these songs in such a way that so many people are like oh yes that's what i want that's what i I wanted to say Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, speaking of what's going on around us, I just realized my dog is right behind me snoring on the couch. <laughs> <laughs> it's very spiritual. I'm make sure you can see him for a second. He's oh, yeah. a giant wine runner, and he literally, I can hear him in the microphone. So just wanted to say that. Adds to the theater that of the One mind. of the songs that's going on in the room right now is the hum of his <laughs> snore. But, um, but you know, I, I, I've always loved words. I mean, I, I remember as a kid, um, pouring over the hymnals or, you know, books or poetry or whatever. I'd, I've always really been drawn to words. And then when you ask a question like that, I, I think it, it makes me realize it, it comes from somewhere else. Like there's a channeling and a craft, a craftsmanship that I think we do the work of practicing um, how to put those words together. But when it's really um, kind of has that electricity, I think it's because you're, because the spirit of God is like around us and within us and, and kind of 
you know, if when we talk about the heartbeat, I mean, the spirit of God is the real heartbeat, you know, that kind of channels through all of us. So the idea of using words and putting words forward, um, I think is a practice that aligns us with those rhythms and trying to um, articulate things that are um, mysterious or that are hard to put into words. I think it just, um, sometimes it crystallizes and I just, I give thanks for it when it happens. <laughs> What are some of the things that you did? How did you build those skills and those muscles in your life in particular? What kind of training, what kind of practice did you do? Um, journaling is, is a top of my list. I think just putting things, pen, putting pen to paper. And, and with journaling, I would say like free writing. So sometimes it'd be prayers or sometimes it would be um, poetry or just observing what I was seeing if I were sitting in a coffee shop or um, in class. I, a lot of it was also by way of school. So if I were in English class and I was studying literature or reading something else or history, um, especially those subjects, but kind of any subject, um, also having a notebook to the right and having something else to take notes on, anything that's, that would evoke a sense of wonder, I would pay attention to that. And I would want to write that down. And so the more I would learn in any sphere, the more I think it would enrich the writing, whether it was songwriting or um, any other place or whatever, I'd practice words. Um, so yeah, literature, um, the classics. I love Bob Dylan and Johnny Cash and, you know, classic writers that I think are good storytellers. Um, and I think we're, we're wired to connect to each other by way of stories. So, but it probably, I mean, Mr. Rogers is probably in there. I mean, the story about the crayons and how the crayons are made, it, it all taps into that sense of asking the questions like, well, where did this come from? Why is it this way? Why does the label look this way? And those questions are what um, kind of get the wheels turning to where when you, when you sit down to write a song, it's, it's all in there um, to draw from. Have you ever analyzed your, yourself and your melodic sensibilities and your musical? I'm, I'm talking not so much about lyrics now, but the musical things that mm -hmm. you do that that come out. Where do you think that stuff comes from? I try not to analyze it too much, I guess. I, maybe I should, <laughs> I should go back. Um, I, you know, probably some of the early influences for me, um, I was in a children's choir, St. Louis Children's Choir, when I was a kid. Um, that was pretty formative as far as singing melodies and singing together and um, and a lot of the, the music that was curated for us was um, was really high quality. So that I really loved that experience. I also listened to um, theater and show tunes a lot and as well as like pop music alongside church music and whatever was in the hymnal. And those those have probably been the primary influences of melodies for me. Um, and then in recent years, one of the things that's helped in terms of melody writing is writing songs for children and thinking about if a child can sing it with you and just having kids in, in my own house. And just, um, I just think being around um, them has been great for me to think about. Like, they're just such, they're such honest critic, critics that, you know, like they're not going to like yeah. it if it's not um, singable. Right, right. <laughs> and they're not afraid to tell you if it's too sad. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh, that's true. <laughs> so I think it's been fun to explore from different seasons of life, like how a melody plays out. And and I, I would hope when I look back that melodies have changed and my my what I'm drawing from or what melodies come out has hopefully changed a little bit over the years, but I'm not sure. Hopefully it grows. Oh, no. Yeah, I definitely sense that it's not like you're doing the same thing all the time. It's just that you seem to be playing with a, I'll say richer, um, although I don't want to offend other people, but the, the toolbox, the, the palette of colors that you're using is different than what we're hearing from a lot of worship music, sacred music. Mm-hmm. And I find it very compelling and refreshing, frankly. Um, Thank you. Because it's not the same intervals and jumps that we're hearing in so much of the other stuff. And so I wonder what ingredients go into that. And the reason I ask that is because when we're talking to young songwriters, I think a lot of times what we are listening to and what we're putting into us is what that those are the tools Mm -hmm. that then we have to play with. So that's great. I would also throw in there like two, like folk music, um, folk melodies are my favorites as far as hymns and church singer, church singing, um, spirituals, things that can be sung without any accompaniment is also like, it's, it's all, um, a great place to explore and to listen to when you're thinking about melodies because it, um, it just enriches. I mean, I don't know why that stuff works, but it does. And it doesn't seem to get old. Well, I've got a, I think you're exactly right. And I think that one of the reasons I think it works is that it, it does not, it must not lean so much on all of the other accoutrements around it. Whereas Mm. arena rock has the benefit of production and uh, lighting. And um, if you just get that, oh, 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 and everybody knows that it's like a soccer stadium full of fans, right? And so you can trick people with production into uh, certain adrenaline reactions Mm -hmm. and whatever. But Americana or folk or European folk or African folk music or Asian folk music relies on human voices in a certain space without all of that other stuff. And so I was thinking back to my first encounters with you and your music, even before it was feeling to me like specifically sacred music. It was more in that kind of singer songwriter realm or even the early days of indelible grace. It seemed like you were already leaning into that folk Mm -hmm. Americana space. And that to me seemed to be one of the things that kind of set you on a path that was maybe a little bit different than what we now think of as corporate yeah worship stuff yeah man i'm glad to hear that it's it's good to think about those things and i think what we're what we're taking in does have a lot to do with what comes out and um so i mean i i even heard i think keith getty was talking about just um what happens as a songwriter if you go spend a little time learning about cantatas (laughs) and just just the counterpoint and the melodies and if you get that in your bloodstream and then you go sit down to write a melody it's like oh there's there's just more harmonization that's that is available to us than what what we normally draw from so um i think that's that's an interesting to keep keep learning like that i want to keep studying new things yeah 
And if you think about a cantata too, if you're talking lyrically about what the point of singing together in worship is, then musically there's also sort of a version of that going on because the notes are actually requiring each other to do and, something yeah. as opposed to it just so being true. a singer and yeah. then we're all singing that and maybe we harmonize with that singer but then we're still sort of subservient to that yeah. main dominant thing whereas a cantata kind of requires almost like steps on a ladder as opposed to just mm -hmm. harmonizing with the that's really interesting that's yeah it's like it's doing the gymnastics of it is all choreographed but it's not just one it's not just one line it's it's lines together and moving lines and which is very different than um, a four-part harmony in a hymnal and a, right. and we've been talking a lot about you know what is what is the tr church tradition what does that look like in our context or in the neighbors the neighboring church down the street and a lot of our traditions are so new you know like even just like the trinity hymnal is is actually a very new <laughs> book when you think about um, harmonization and from a musical standpoint so it would be good if we were continuing to ask those questions so that our music can be um, can also experience that renewal over time this is my father's world and to my listening ears all nature sings and When you started off doing music, did you intend to focus so much? Did you see yourself doing sacred music or congregational music, music that was for people to sing about and to God all the time? No, I really didn't. I, I mean, I, 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 I didn't think so. I just, <laughs> I didn't see that coming. Um, in in 2005, well, so I had been part of the Indelible Grace music, and prior to that, I loved hymns, but it was always a personal, private, devotional practice. Like it was either church. Um, my experience in my church community, in my church community, or um, even just in my own devotional life. And I would sit at the piano and that was a time that was so connected to prayer for me. So then in 2005, um, after some encouragement from my friend Kevin Twitt, he was like, you need to do your own record of hymns. And I was just, I was just resistant because I didn't want to get, I had been living in Nashville for a few years and just didn't want to get too far into the you know, the church music box. I just didn't know what that would mean categorically, not so much that I had any problem doing that. Um, and even when, so I made an album and that year it was called The Builder and the Architect. It was also the beginning of home recording. So it was the first time I'd ever like recorded in my bedroom where you could just set up mics and do like what we're doing now. That was, um, that was so new to me. And I think you, I think those two things combined that, that um, like kind of the private prayer, channeling into these hymns that I then put out and recorded at home, um, something really special happened. And I didn't even put it on my website with the other songs because I thought it was such an, you know, such an outlier. <laughs> and people started to find it. And 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 then I think over, over basically since then, over the last 15 years, um, it's become more and more central for me. And just, just because I've, I feel the resonance of it. I feel... There, there are no, there's no finer poetry, and there are no, um, there are no other stories more rich than the stories in scripture. And so, as I've mined those things, it's just been 
it's been um, more and more of a joy to do that than um, so all of a sudden I find myself here and I'm doing sacred music more, <laughs> more than, but I'm still doing country songs and um, and trying to keep all the all the uh, creative um, all the creative juices flowing in whatever way they're going to go. Draw me out with the morning stars. Wake me up with beauty. Sprout a daisy in the yard. Every day remind me. And you do the kids' projects too, which is yeah. the Rain for Roots. Tell me about kind of how that came about and what what space that fills in. This. Yeah. Um, I had two young children at the time and um, a, a handful of other friends in our community were with all kind of in the same stage of early childhood with our, our families and um, partnered with Sally Lloyd-Jones. She had a book of children's poems um, and, and we, we took those poems and put them in music and the, the first album's called Big Stories for Little Ones. I guess that was also part of the home recording thing. So I had just built a home studio and um, we recorded it there and then just kind of kept making those songs right as right alongside the kids growing up and wanting to have songs for them to sing that um, that are folk melodies, like we talked about, singable folk melodies um, that are hopefully not um, as irritating for parents to also listen right. to as the stuff not insulting, I remember when we were right, right, <laughs> you know, you're right, just like, yeah. oh, if this is if this is a win, we can all listen to this together. Hopefully, it's not. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, so so that was that was basically the the beginning of that project. And then you just put out another one a couple yeah. months ago, right? Yeah, yeah. and and so it that, even has it's kind of I like how it has evolved to where the new one I was listening to it going, you know, if you didn't tell me this was yeah. kids music, oh, I good. wouldn't necessarily know yeah. because I put I put a couple songs in our we do a Spotify mixtape every week for the mm-hmm. the True Tunes thing, you know, and, and I put some songs in there and it definitely like it's just kind of kind of fits right in. Yeah, it fits right in. And I'm so yeah. glad. And the kids, you know, the, the kids have gotten older and I think right. um and while that was always important that everybody would enjoy it, I think more and more um it's grown alongside alongside of the kids and um, I'm glad to hear that. Don't go anywhere. There's a lot more to this conversation coming up in just a few minutes. Welcome back to the True Tunes podcast. As we stroll over to the jukebox today, I want to reflect on a couple of records that came out almost 30 years ago now. I believe these two volumes were important, beautiful, critical pieces of work in that they managed to combine the holiness of a cathedral with the comfort of a front porch. They brought new, accessible songs to the independent, alternative Christian community. And even if they didn't become platinum-selling hits themselves, I truly believe that they helped set the stage for the movement that has allowed space for artists like Sandra McCracken to thrive today. Did you feel the mountains tremble? Did you hear the oceans roar? When the people rose to sing of Jesus Christ the risen What is currently called modern worship 
You know, big, anthemic, arena-sized, light rock music with a congregational sound and very personally-oriented lyrics is actually a relatively new animal in the zoo we call Christian music. And as many of you know, I was fortunate enough to spend nearly 10 years working inside one of the companies that is most directly credited with driving its growth, Worship Together and its parent company, Capital Christian Music Group Publishing. And within that world, most people cite either the British songwriter Matt Redman or the English alternative pop worship band Delirious as being the catalysts that sparked the modern worship movement. Others rightly draw attention to the one-day events that college ministry called Passion put together alongside their worship leader, Chris Tomlin. And yes, Worship Together evolved as an excellent resource to help serve all of those things. But before Tomlin, before Redmond, before Passion, before Delirious, even before City on a Hill Records and Third Day's massive hit worship albums and Michael W. Smith's worship projects, before all of that, there was a small community of artists who gathered, first in Los Angeles and later in Nashville, around the transformative idea that when worship and music came together, the results should be more atmospheric than bombastic. That by connecting to the sonic elements of traditional American folk music and what were then notes of alternative rock, they might be able to craft deeply spiritual, even worshipful songs that pulled listeners into an experience that was beautiful and in its own way, even scandalous. Sweet original project, released nearly 30 years ago in 1991, was called At the Foot of the Cross, written and produced by Steve Hindelong and Derry Daugherty of the choir, and released on their own indie Glasshouse label. The project gathered many alternative Christian music underground heroes and some mainstream artists together, among them Mike Rowe of the 77s, Adam Again's Gene Eugene, Michael Knott of Lifesavers, LSU and Aunt Betty's fame, Buddy and Julie Miller, Victoria Williams, Phil Keggy, and Bob Bennett, as well as several members of Daniel Amos, including Jerry Chamberlain on guitars, Greg Flesh handling vocal arrangements, and Rob Watson creating amazing string arrangements. The legendary Mark Hurd's appearance here was truly special as he passed away shortly after its release. This amazing tribe of friends gathered around a batch of songs, mostly written by Hindalong and Doherty, bringing them to life in ways that the alternative Christian rock world certainly had not heard before. Was 
at the foot of the cross seem to be equally inspired by world music artists like Peter Gabriel, early Jesus music, high church liturgical hymns, and the kind of rootsy music that would later be called Americana. The first volume focused on the concept of the Trinity, or really a trinity within a trinity. It embraced the Celtic Christian tradition in the ways the songs contemplated the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on one level, but also the Sanctus, the Kyrie, and the Agnus Dei elements of a mass laid over that. The album opens with what is essentially the title track, Clouds, Rain, Fire, featuring Kate Minor and some guitar sounds that at first were reminiscent of the choir but things got really ambient and deconstructed really fast. With elaborate and artful strings and percussion arrangements and those poetic lyrics, you could tell right away this was not merely going to be a worship album featuring the choir. The dust of your feet Clouds are the dust of your feet Roundabout You made an interesting second cut, as it featured the incredible Phil Keggy on both vocals and acoustic guitar, riffing on a motif borrowed from the choir's song Clouds from Chase the Kangaroo. First of the album's several liturgical interludes comes next, a choral and organ setting of Sanctus that is completely traditional and not the slightest bit ironic, where many contemporary worship projects in those days sounded determined to bring the holy down to earth. With Sanctus and the other sacramental moments here, it was clear that Hindelong, Darty, and arrangers Watson and Flesh had the reverse goal in mind, endeavoring to transcend, to lift the songs and we singers up above the earth and whatever it was that was chaining us down. Sanctus. Sanctus. 
breakout song of the set, the one that will still be sung this Sunday all around the world, is the breathtaking meditation on the crucifixion, Beautiful Scandalous Night. Here, the plaintive waltz is recorded by Bob Bennett, Darty, and Julie Miller, but in future years, it would be covered by Sixpence None the Richer, Robbie Seaband, Sheila Walsh, Small Town Poets, and many others. In an era of dominion and moralism, this simple song charmed millions with its juxtaposition of the gospel as being both beautiful and scandalous. Go on up to the mountain of mercy, to the crimson perpetual tide. Kneel down on the shore, be thirsty no more. Go under and be purified. Follow Christ to the holy mountain. Sinners sorry and wrecked by the fall. Cleanse your heart and your soul in the fountain that flows for you and for At the wonderful, tragic, mysterious tree On that beautiful, scandalous night You and me were atoned by His blood And forever washed white On that beautiful, scandalous night At the foot of the cross was unlike anything that had come before it. It was successful enough that Word Records, the label that acted as Glasshouse's distributor, backed a second volume based on the seven last words spoken by Christ on Good Friday and featuring another who's who list of Christian artists, including Brian Duncan, Charlie Peacock, Tom Howard, Marty McCall, Anointed and Babby Mason, Brent Bourgeois, and others. It was slightly more polished sounding than volume one, but retained most of the same vibe. When the torch of When the flame of mercy is hidden in the darkness For the big tree revealed for each and every The album artfully examines those last seven phrases uttered by Christ on the cross. Its style and substance could not be more different than most of the worship songs coming out today. Of all of the highlights on this second volume, it may be Marty McCall's Why Have You Forsaken Me that has stuck with me the strongest and rings in my ears every Holy Week to this day. At the Foot of the Cross was hugely successful in our little world back in the mid-90s, but this level of artistry and theological heft was not exactly going to fill arenas or rattle megachurches. The one time it was performed live that I know of 
was at a special communion service at a Cornerstone Festival in the mid-90s. I remember our friend, current True Tunes contributor, and a longtime United Church of Christ pastor, Brian Quincy Newcomb, officiated the communion service. It was a beautiful evening at the gallery stage that ranks as a true highlight of that festival for me. Hindalong and Darty wound up reprising the ideas here in a series of similar projects called City on a Hill, which some considered to be sequels to these original records. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and it More great songs for sure, and even bigger production values, even as alternative and rock artists that had previously operated in the margins of the Christian music world found themselves right smack in the CCM bullseye. The ethos worked for a season, but eventually this organic, layered, richer approach to contemporary sacred music craft was consumed by a decidedly more commercial approach. But the two volumes of At the Foot of the Cross once out of print and highly coveted, are now streaming everywhere. And these songs are just as good as they ever were. If you're looking for depth and resonance in the songs you sing on Sunday, or whenever you have people in your sacred space, or maybe just for yourself, discover or rediscover these songs. They are just itching to be remade for a new generation. And who knows, spending some time with music like this might just inspire you to write some transcendent worship music of your own. And now, back to our conversation with Sandra. You also spent several years every week as a worship pastor at a local Anglican mm -hmm. church. Mm -hmm. um, did you find or have you find have you found that having the audience kind of in your face like that has shaped how you're crafting your music? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I would say prior to the time I served, so I, I had been at, at this church for five years serving in that capacity basically every week. So having the rhythms, these liturgical rhythms of joining and being part of a community um, really affected the writing. And in one sense, because I wasn't just writing theoretical music, I was writing music for um, for us and in the voice of that's like our congregational voice. And so when people are experiencing life together and, and then the songs emerge out of that, I think that was, um, was deeply fulfilling just to... Um, have all of that melding together in that way you know and i think that changes um what comes out and did you find that that the liturgical nature of the anglican um music kind of has a different role in a in a liturgical service than in a contemporary worship service in a liturgical service the the music serves specific purposes throughout 
And the whole thing is worship, like whether it's the music or the scripture readings or the homily, communion, do you find or ha did you find that participating in a more liturgical tradition opened you up as a songwriter to think about composing songs in a different way because they were fulfilling different mm -hmm. purposes? Yeah, absolutely. My tradition was, um, was more evangelical, uh, for the most part, Presbyterian. And in that tradition, there's a lot of reliance on words. And it's still liturgical in one sense, but not quite as, um, not quite as, not quite on the grid in the same way. And I just loved, I have just loved in getting to know this, in both the church calendar. So if you zoom out, like just that there are seasons and that there's an acknowledgement of seasons and that we pace ourselves through these things. Um, all that was new to me. And then down to the small things about each service, um, I noticed serving um, by way of music in an Anglican context that, um, that less is more. So with music, um, fewer words is actually, um, I began to, to carve out more space. So, you know, so you have all these words already, you know, from the prayer, the prayers of communion and a lot of scripture reading. And it just feels like if you got in there with an eight verse hymn in between each one of those, you'd just be exhausted by the time you got to the offertory. You know? right, right. So things like that, some of the things, just the logistics of pacing, um, music became uh, such a restful component in the liturgy and I began to enjoy that. And so it changed my songwriting. The newer songs that I have, there, there are fewer words in them. And I think that was a result of that practice. You also came out with a, a lament, a, an album full of psalms of lament. And I wondered if that, if somehow having experience in, in a worship environment like that opened you up to even the concept that that was appropriate. But was that somehow uh, informed by that, you think? I, I do think um, that there was a synergy there where all those things were happening at the same time. I think there's space in the Anglican tradition, um, there, there is space in all traditions, all Christian traditions for lament and that we would, um, I think it's good to, to make more of that, you know, make more songs that give us, um, time and that value lament. I remember being a teenager and someone made me a mixtape and there were songs, um, like I remember a few songs that were by, uh, various artists, but I remember the Indigo Girls on some of their early stuff and it was just the two of them. And there was such longing and, and sort of, it was like there was something in that that was not what I was seeing on, you know, like the praise songs at church. And I, and I remember hearing it and thinking, okay, where is this in the church? Like, where is this level of emotional honesty? And then you find it in hymn writers like Anne Steele, just reading reading her lyrics on the page, and then and then thinking about new melodies for texts like that. So lament has been with us in the church, but then there are seasons where we just have played up the sunniness so much that I think we've missed out on the formation that we that we are offered in the Christian tradition. Do you have any ideas why that might be? Why we drifted from the total expression into just that is a good question. My knee-jerk reaction would be to say, like, you're more likely to buy something if you're happy, you know? Right. And I hate to pin it all on 
um, capitalism, but there, <laughs> there is a but sense you might as well. <laughs> that, you know, when you like, you know, you get yeah. the buzz from going out to buy something and it's like, if you have to sit with yourself and not have a new pair of shoes, you know, you're going to ask some deeper questions right. um, and you're going to get to those questions a little faster. And the good news is lament is not a thing that is um, it's a it's a passage. It's like a you move through lament, and on the other side of lament, there is a more authentic joy than if you tried to um, just go straight to the mall <laughs> and avoid it altogether. Right. So the sunniness right. is like it it comes um, in a richer way when you're willing to go through the depths. Nobody needs another love song. Sometimes you need to sing your own song. Nobody needs a symbol and a clanging gong. It is not love. It is not love. It is not love. And even if it's not capitalism or the mall, I think that the church has adopted the values of consumerism and created a, a religious product that it kind of offers people come to church pay a tithe and, and, and kind of experience a religious product at church. Right. And that product is often, if that's, if that's the transaction that people are looking for, mm -hmm. uh, then contemplation of mortality and loss and mm -hmm. that songs from the Valley seems to be more what we probably need in this season. Have you found that that project and songs from that project are, resonating are you hearing from people because i know yeah. for me uh, like if i'm thinking oh i need uh, worship music today i need some sacred music i'm going to that record more than ever during this pandemic season mm. we need those songs of lament we need to push <laughs> through that model and say well you're offering something else you're offering what we actually need not what we want mm. i feel like you're you've <laughs> exposed something that's uh that's a little different than the model that we're in. And, and I wondered if that was because you were actually in church with people seeing their faces and, and serving mm -hmm. them as a worship pastor, as opposed to mm -hmm. just creating a product that you're hoping people would consume. I think I was a recipient, the recipient of that, you know, and that, and mm -hmm. that community, that authentic community that gives you space to bring all of your emotion is actually, um, it's, it's so inviting and it's, and it, um, and, by attraction, it's drawing you out of those places of hiding and those places of addiction and what you know, whatever it is we run to for that hit of endorphins. Um, the gospel holds that in full, you know, the thing that we are actually looking for. So I think experiencing that in communities is really huge. And yeah, I think these times are um, uh, we are we are given some new opportunities, right, to confront those questions and. Um, I listened to Fool's Gold from, it came on Shuffle the other day from Songs from the Valley. And it had been a while since I'd heard it and it seemed uh, still very resonant. Kind of, I kind of teared up, which is a weird thing to say about my own song, but it's not like I listened to my own songs, you know? And then it comes on and I was just like, yes, uh, I can say amen to that again <laughs> in a new way, in a different time and, and um, different circumstances. And then there's a new album that I'm, that I've been working on and, um, it's called Patient Kingdom, and we're just just finishing it up this week. But one of the songs in there is called "You Are the Word," and it 
it just seems so resonant with those same themes. It's like a continuation of those themes where it's a, where it, it is a dialogue, a back and forth of, hey, you, you said you'd do this and here are all the ways that I see you're doing this and here are all the things that I don't see yet. And being able to mm-hmm. continue that dialogue, I think is um, what relationship with God is in prayer and in conversation and, um, and it's ongoing, you know, so. Pressure is building like stones on my chest. You said you'd fling them far as east is from west. Tangled up in the garden, hidden in shame. You said you'd be with me in all of this pain. Broken, first song I will sing uh, I've heard that mm-hmm. um, and I like that longing that, that it's like I'm gonna do this thing this mm-hmm. is how I that's how it yeah. hit me was right. that I'm gonna do this whether I believe it or not like, <laughs> I, I, like I'm gonna yeah. just obey and and walk on the water whether it makes sense or not is that yeah. kind of what you're saying like yeah. this next project has that theme of longing is that what I'm I do sensing? yeah I think it's still in there I think they um, about a year a year or more ago when I started compiling um, j- when I was exploring themes for this new project I was thinking about anxiety and how many people are struggling with anxiety and what it is to sing comfort and push through that um, and then here we find ourselves in 2020 in this super strange year and more anxiety communally than I've ever experienced in my lifetime and so how fitting that we would be um, continuing this dialogue of what does it mean to find God's presence in the middle of those questions and um, to to reckon with our own loneliness in it and to even just in the process of making this album that we were all in four different states, you know, there's like a loneliness and a frustration to like, well, I want to collaborate with you people, <laughs> you know, and not just send it through a screen. And even today it's like, um, yeah, we're, we're like part. a mile away from each other. We should be hanging out and having coffee, right? <laughs> That's right. So I think I think we are um, we have some opportunities to to lean in during this time. Let my soul rise up to meet you as the day rises to the sun. Let my soul rise up to meet you let that patient kingdom come can you highlight a couple of songs from the project and tell me about them yeah okay i'd be glad to um Mm. so the title track patient kingdom um is a little folk song that i wrote with um sarah mason and another guy gareth davies jones who's actually in the uk so he sang from you know from england and sent his vocals over and sarah from across town but um that song was really 
it's it's a, a question asking song and it's a little bit um, left of center. Like, I don't know that it would fit in all the worship services in most churches, but there is, it asks the question about like God's, about the patient kingdom. Like, what does it mean to invite that and to live into that um, in, in times of uncertainty, which let's be honest, like it's always uncertain, right? <laughs> exactly, right. <laughs> like there's some illusion that we have it, something figured out or we know what to expect, but we don't know what's coming. And so I think the patience of that and the, um, has been, that song has been um, a surprising theme and became the album title somewhere in the middle of the process of recording. Um, you Are the Word is one I mentioned before I wrote with Phil Madeira and um, that heard was of him. You've heard of him, right? <laughs> I've heard and of it him, was yeah. it was we we were actually writing in person before our all the shutdown happened and it was maybe right before that actually. And it was so good. Yeah, it was so good to write something that was a little bit um, unconventional but has that authenticity and the the dialogue between like just sort of the call and response of gospel questions. I Will Sing is from Psalm 89, and another one, that that one and another one, You Are With Me, I wrote with Leslie Jordan. And um, those two are, are both songs about longing and about like declaring, okay, God is good, and, and I still am here in this valley kind of walking through. And so um, I think there's a lot of joy in the sound and in the landscape of the album, but, um, but the longing is definitely like a pulse just beneath the surface. A lot of people think I've got to sign a deal and, and I'm, we're always saying, no, 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 like there's yeah. a time and a place. So what is the decision making that goes into when the right time is to actually partner up with somebody? And I don't think there's really any, any such thing as independent music. Like we are interdependent right. and always partnering right. and collaborating, um, even if you're an independent artist. And there's so, there's so much good about that. And I would continue to affirm that for people that it's usually... Um, the best way to develop as an artist. And the reason I would say that is because I value collaboration, but so often it's hard to hear your own voice. And when you're trying to figure out what your voice is, and I mean kind of that internal voice. So I partnered last year with Integrity, um, did a Christmas album, and I produced that with a group of musicians, just like I have done the last few years. Um, and then licensed it with them so we just kind of came together and said let's do this and then this new album is actually like old-fashioned way it's like a record deal and they're you know writing the checks and i'm just like this is so different for me <laughs> um it's been great it's been a great experience and for me this year it has been an additional gift because i couldn't have timed it or known to ask for that at this time and it's been a huge gift you know just to not have the stress of writing those checks right now you know this is why you partner and this is a great way to partner and so that's there's so much discovery around that and i'm so grateful to for the whole integrity team for um even in just the collaboration up to this point about i mean there's you know somebody on staff that hand wrote all the letters for the fonts for the singles you know and i'm just oh, like this is amazing like the the yeah. art that goes into creating something together that is kind of what we're trying to do with this show too the idea of listening to better music mm -hmm. 
uh, and listening to music better, sometimes that involves, we got to learn about how this works, you know, that, that it's not as simple as you, it is when you're just getting started, just make great music. Like if you just make great music, yeah. But when you get to your level, there's a strategy that kicks in of saying, okay, you fu- you're functioning as a songwriter, mm-hmm. but you're also functioning as an artist. And, and mm-hmm. you have to think about the fact that your songs are going to travel and be yeah. used by churches. And that's one set of mm-hmm. business that has to be taken care of. But then your recordings are going to function on, a, on another thing. And yeah. that's a separate set of business. And so there's, there's lots of different conversations and deals that have to be done and at some point it's it just gets to be too much mm-hmm. you know that's um, a great point and i think and i think the the living forward into your gifts like whatever as you fine-tune that for all of us it's like a matter of saying where where am i making the most impact of my time so if i'm you know if i'm not the one doing the hand lettering or the like all these other jobs that could be done that are someone else would do a way better job that at the marketing at the publishing side at the um, administration having a team of people that can all build that is um, a way of kind of multiplying your efforts and I think that's why um, there are there is a time that it's advantageous for for these kinds of partnerships I lift my eyes up to mountains where does my help come from I lift my Generally speaking, what advice do you have for young people who are just in the beginning of their journey? How can they invest in themselves and prepare themselves to have a long, fruitful career in ministry doing this? Um, It's a big question, but I would say small answers. Uh, One would be the importance of community, like songwriting, encouraging, um, collaborating communities. So find people to write with um, and to feedback on songs and and maybe even some non-musicians, like some people that are that love music or that want to give feedback on it that are not doing the same thing you're doing and for young women that that you would find other females to do you know because those dynamics are um formative that the time of working together and collaborating is is vulnerable work and i think just trying to do that um in a way that is building your friendships and relationships i think is um is so important and then from a songwriting standpoint i think if you set out to write the universal church music song, you're not going to write that song. You're going to write something disposable, right? But if you write something that is from that deep place within you or that sparks from a conversation between two or three friends that is that is so personal and it is so connected to who you are in your own story, the more specific you are in the writing, the more broadly it, it can be understood. That's the hard work is like really like turning yourself inside out, you know, so that people would say, yes, you know, I, I see that. And that's the thing I've been trying to put into words and I can't. We need each other for that. feel kind of along those same lines that worship music or music as worship and therefore 
songwriters who call, are feeling called into that space have a role to play in this moment culturally as we see the division that has been exposed mm. on it it's the division that's been there for a long time but as injustices have been revealed uh on a deeper level between uh racial injustice mm -hmm. uh financial injustice do you think that worship music congregational worship music and therefore songwriters have a a role to play in mm. speaking into this moment mm. Yeah, um, last year I was part of a, a conversation here in Nashville hosted by like the Porter's Gate Project and we spent a couple of days talking and it was a really diverse group of people and uh, I, I guess it was after some some of the events in Charlottesville, Virginia and a lot of the people had, had been close up with that and so there was some heat, you know, there was some uh, a lot of raw emotion in that in those conversations. I would say it was so important and it was also so hard. And it was just like, man, I don't. And I think when I get close up to stuff that is so systemic and so um, you just can't put your arms around it. And so my default is, I guess, going back to these songs of lament and in the lament that that there would be active listening that we that i would be able to be still and listen and pay attention because if we go forward too quickly trying to write the songs about justice and trying to like move right into the middle of those chaotic spaces i think we miss out on self-reflection that is essential to songs that would that would go forward and really be hospitable to everybody, right? So I don't know how to do that. I don't know that you can have songs that are hospitable to everybody. I don't know if that's our job, but I do right. think listening is our job and self-reflection and confession and humility is the way, it is the way of the cross. And it's also not new, right? Like this is a, this is a heated moment, but oppression is not new. It's hard to even want to talk in that space. I think I just, I just want to like have silence in it and just to listen to um, whoever needs to speak, you know. And it's probably not me. If we say that one of the purposes of music in worship is to prepare our hearts to receive the word, we sing these songs to prepare our hearts to receive the word. You know, like, but man, we're so defensive right now. We're so yeah. everybody is so. We need, I believe, if worship if musical worship can help soften that soil then we need songs that will mm -hmm. actually dig through some of our own church stuff yeah so that those seeds can be break our hearts a little bit <laughs> goes back to your first question of like why do we need new songs it's like because exactly yeah because we need that renewal we need to be broken open um that it would be fragrant again that we would be fragrant to each other i want students and i want young people to to find your songs and to find your writing um, because I really feel that your your voice, you're, you're cutting through and chipping away at some of that uh, defensiveness and making room for that stuff. So blessings to you and, uh, and peace to everybody in your world and uh, we will be in touch. Thanks a lot. All right. Thanks, John. Talking with Sandra and listening to her songs reminds me of my earliest experiences with music that was designed to be used congregationally and in a corporate worship setting, but that was also new and fresh. I grew up in the Episcopal Church where, for the most part, we sang really old hymns. 
Sometimes the charismatics among us, I'm looking at you, mom, flexed their Holy Spirit muscles and pushed us to sing some Jesus Movement praise choruses. I even helped my parents put together a totally illegal little chapbook of those songs. They were pretty dated, but compared to Lift High the Cross, they were downright radical. I've long said, and I deeply believe, that music is essentially and profoundly spiritual and that the highest expression of music's purpose is to give glory back to the creator of music. In fact, the creator of all beauty and all good things. That's essentially what worship is. The Greek word proskuneo, which is one of the words we translate as worship means literally to kiss toward. The things we kiss toward are the things we value the most, the things we respect and honor. So when I think about worship and music, and my faltering affections, I am convicted and challenged. It's easy enough for me to blame my problems with modern worship music on the genre or the industry or even the self-oriented lyrics of some of the songs or any number of other things. But if I don't start by deeply reflecting on my own heart, I'm going to miss the point. I can find problems with other people and their songs all day long. But what am I kissing toward? Have I tuned my heart to sing God's praise? Or is my heart tuned to a different frequency? There's actually a lot of really interesting worship music or sacred music being made right now. I've seen the spirit move in all kinds of ways through all kinds of music and when no music is playing at all. I'm humbled by that and determined to stay engaged and available. But here's something I know to be true. No matter how powerful the music is or how moving the experience feels, if the worship we are engaged in is not changing us, is not transforming us into something more and more in line with the heart of God, then we are kissing toward the wrong thing. There is something on that throne we are singing to. If it's the maker of all good and true things, it will be shaping us and molding us into something more good and more true, and we will be softening learning how to love our neighbors better and how to bring the kingdom to earth more powerfully. But if it's just a projection of ourselves up there on that throne, well, we see the results of that worship will be very, very different. And it seems God does have an opinion about all of this too. I certainly don't want to be on the receiving end of the kind of rebuke the prophet Amos delivered when God said through him, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. I remember when the lovely people at St. Mark's would, once a year, turn over the entire service to the youth. We got to lead the music and the sermon. We rocked out the hymns and made them as noisy and relevant as we could. I'm sure it all sounded quite terrible, actually. But all we got from those people were smiles. They saw and heard our hearts, I suppose. I imagine that must be what worship is like for God and how it should be for me still. I'm a little bit more skilled as a musician now, and I hope my tastes and sensitivities have grown, but I don't think God really needs my music or my new songs. I do. I mean, there are angels surrounding the throne singing holy, 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 right? What God seems to desire and what I need is a heart that is being transformed and that knows who belongs on that throne. Okay, I'm getting off the soapbox now. 
that's about it for this episode of the podcast. Reach out and let us know about the worship music that is blowing your mind and heart. If you're looking for new songs and new sounds that will inspire you and help you to tune your heart, check out our show notes page for this episode. You'll find links to the amazing project Liz Weiss has been working on with David Gunger and Good Shepherd in New York. There's a group in Chicago called The Many that have been doing some really interesting things as well. I'll link to the groups I've been working with, Cross Worship, Community Music, and Fox and Fall, as well as others. Of course, we'll link to Sandra's music, as well as the amazing new Reigns for Roots Kids project that she's a part of. And do listen to the weekly Spotify Gallery Stage mixtape. I try to include gospel and sacred music in every mix, and in the last year, you would have heard some great tracks from groups like Nashville Life Music, Common Hymnal, Young Oceans, and others. But if you know of something out there that has inspired you, drop me an email and let me know. I want to hear it, and I might just add it to the list. Things are growing here for the show, and we sure appreciate your support. Please make sure to leave us reviews wherever you listen, especially Apple Podcasts if possible, and tell your friends. Also, head to TrueTunes.com and sign up for our email list for a chance to win some of the cool stuff we offer from time to time, and make sure you don't miss our articles and news on our Facebook page, at TrueTunes Now. The TrueTunes podcast is written and produced by myself, John J. Thompson, and Bruce A. Brown, and is engineered and edited by Bruce. The contents are protected by U.S copyright law and are the intellectual property of gyroscope productions with the exception of songs or clips that are from previously copywritten materials everything on this episode is used by permission or under fair use provisions this program is intended for the private use of our listening audience gyroscope productions can be reached at truetunesmusic at gmail.com or p.o box 60401 nashville tennessee 37206 until next time this is jjt challenging you to sing those new songs If you're a friend or a newcomer, consider that an invitation. Until next time, stay tuned and stay true. John Thompson's turning 50 in 2020, so he's celebrating at home. His friends are zooming in, so he won't be celebrating alone. He wrote a couple soulful books and quite a few true tunes. He made a mark in more than just one town. His heart is full of mercy. I respect his point of view. He's the kind of friend you need when you're down. John Thompson's turning 50 in 2020. He's celebrating at home. His friends are zooming in, so he won't be celebrating alone. Everybody, John Thompson's turning 50 in 2020, so he's celebrating at home. His friends are zooming in, so he won't be celebrating alone. <laughs> oh.